Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading Acts chapter 4 from the World English Bible. As they spoke to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them, being upset because they taught the people and proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was now evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about five thousand. In the morning their rulers, elders, and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and as many as were relatives of the high priest. When they had stood Peter and John in the middle of them, they inquired, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we are examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, may it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands here before you whole in him. He is the stone which was regarded as worthless by you, the builders, which has become the head of the corner. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and had perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Seeing the man who was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? Because indeed a notable miracle has been done through them, as can be plainly seen by all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that this spreads no further among the people, let's threaten them that from now on they don't speak to anyone in this name. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, judge for yourselves, for we can't help telling the things which we saw and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for everyone glorified God for that which was done. For the man on whom this miracle of healing was performed was more than forty years old. Being let go, they came to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, you are God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth take a stand and the rulers take counsel together 
against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your counsel foreordained to happen. Now, Lord, look at their threats, and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were gathered together. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. With great power the apostles gave their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was on them all. For neither was there among them any who lacked, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each according as anyone had need. Joseph, who by the apostles was also called Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, son of encouragement, a Levite, a man of Cyprus by race, having a field, sold it and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. That is the end of chapter 4. In chapter 4 here, the scene continues from chapter 3, where we had the healing of the lame man, and we see people with position and authority based on the Old Covenant, with some distortions of it, disturbed, as it says, that Peter and John were teaching about Jesus. It particularly says they were disturbed by them teaching the resurrection of the dead. And this makes sense when you know who the Sadducees are. The first place we hear about the Sadducees in the Bible is in Matthew 3, 7, where John the baptizer calls both them and the Pharisees who came out to see him vipers. Not very diplomatic, but he is trying to shock them into seeing they need repentance. It is milder than what happened to Saul, who became Paul on the road to Damascus, though. In Matthew 16, 1, the Sadducees show up with the Pharisees again, trying to manipulate Jesus with requests for signs. Jesus takes that opportunity to warn his disciples about the doctrines of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so what they taught, and he compares it to leaven, which in the Jewish way of thinking indicates that it's corrupt. But the more famous passage is with just the Sadducees is in both Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20, where it is explained that they pose a philosophical riddle to Jesus to try to get him to admit that there can't possibly be life after death. They really sound like the academic atheists of today. They had position and the appearance of wisdom based on human reasoning that denied literal promises of the scripture. In both the Matthew and Mark accounts, it includes Jesus beginning the response by telling them they are in error for two reasons. One, they don't know the scriptures, and two, they don't know the power of God. The first statement, that they don't know the scriptures, has the implication of not knowing in the sense of not understanding, because I'm pretty sure as religious leaders that they had read them. Number two, that they don't know the power of God is they have a very small view of what God could do, probably based on the box that their philosophy kept their thinking in. 
if they had read the scriptures trying to know God honestly rather than manipulating the scripture to fit their philosophy, they probably wouldn't have come up with such a conundrum. So Peter and John know what they're up against. Also, it's interesting that it is predominantly the Sadducees who persecute the Christians after the resurrection. You can see this by just doing a word search of the two groups, one for the Pharisees and one for the Sadducees, and see that it is mostly the Sadducees in the book of Acts. It seems here in chapter 4 that the Sadducees have sway over the positions of religious authority, as it were. On a bit of a side note, in verse 6, we see again how popular the name of John was, since it mentions a John in the group that then puts Peter and John in the middle. And also, even though there are groups mentioned, the names of individuals are given like Theophilus would know who they were. Then all of these religious authorities ask Peter and John a very odd question, namely, by whose authority have you done this? Now, either these people hadn't been paying attention to anything or they're being officially obtuse. And I think it's the latter, since the whole reason they were upset was that everyone knows about the miracle and they're teaching about Jesus. That was said right up front. So their question is just part of their posturing, all the pomp and ceremony that they're going through to try and intimidate. Verse 8 says that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say he became filled, it states it as something he is, but it is the same wording that is used in Acts chapter 2, when we know the Holy Spirit did first come down. What it seems to be highlighting and emphasizing here is that Peter has a source of supernatural wisdom and boldness. I went ahead and did a little bit of a mini-study, you might say, on the Holy Spirit through the New Testament here. For instance, In 1 Thessalonians 4.8, Paul says, we have been given his Holy Spirit as believers. But the references start as soon as Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, where it says they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, recall it said, repent and receive the Holy Spirit. Um, Going back to John chapter 14 verse 26, Jesus says he will send and the Holy Spirit will teach. Acts 5.32 says the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. Acts 6.5 says Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 8.16, we have an interesting reference where it said the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them yet. And I'll get back to that later. Acts 9.31 talks about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.44 gives kind of an opposite scenario of Acts 8.16, where it says the Holy Spirit fell on them when they heard the gospel. Um, Romans 5.5 says it's through the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in their hearts. Romans 9.1 talks about the Holy Spirit bearing witness. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 2.4 says the Holy Spirit gives gifts, and Jude 1.20 says we pray in the Holy Spirit, and that's just a sampling of the scriptures about it. I think one of the key points in all of this is to remember that the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit is not just this power source that Christians plug into that we can 
just use at will. Instead, it's a relationship. And the more we open ourselves up to the relationship, the more the Holy Spirit can guide our lives in ways that are particular to different situations. Which brings me back to the difference between Acts 8.16 and Acts 10.44. It's pretty clear in Acts 10.44 that God is using the timing of when he pours out the Holy Spirit to verify that Gentiles can become believers. Whereas in, if you look at the story of Acts 8.16, that's where you have a whole bunch of believers in an area that has a lot of sorcery going on and a lot of strange things that they see. And so it seems like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is held off until they can get a very definite setup that God sends other disciples to say, this is from God so that these people there won't be confused. Anyway, that's my theory based on the stories. And so again, the main point is that the Holy Spirit is a person. This is a relationship that we enter into. It's a dynamic thing. It's multifaceted like any relationship. He needs our cooperation, but he doesn't take over And as many places where Paul writes, we can learn to walk more or less open to the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives. Now, this whole trial that's going on here is another case of what people meant for evil. God is exceedingly capable of using for good. Peter gives the gospel in another very public venue, and he tells them that they crucified Jesus and God raised him from the dead. He's talking right to the Sadducees. He is declaring resurrection to him to them. He also quotes Psalm 118.22 to them about the stone that the builders, they rejected, but has become the stone that the, of the strong foundation upon which God is building his kingdom a kingdom which apparently we will see they unfortunately want no part of. Peter makes some very clear statements that there is no salvation in any other person, not another teacher, not themselves, not in heaven. The response of the council baffles me and is an example that miracles don't always make a difference when people don't want to hear. They knew an incredible miracle had been done, something none of them had ever done, But their judgment in the religious court is to keep it all quiet. You would think they would be happy to hear that, one, there is life after death of their physical bodies that's possible, and two, that there is a clear way to be forgiven. Even in verse 19, when Peter says he must listen, he and John must listen to God, these religious leaders don't even address that. They just threaten them. Men who do miracles by the power of God are threatened by these religious authorities. Then we get the added information that this lame man was over 40 years old. He had been lame in that area for so long. He was very well known. He had been lame since birth, as you recall. And he was past an age where you could say, oh, he just got better. This miracle could not have been more obvious. When Peter and John return to their own company or companions, they pray. Now, maybe the whole prayer wasn't recorded, but notably what was recorded was about how great God was, and they pray for boldness in getting the message out. And they quote Psalm 2, which I put to a tune years ago for my children to memorize it. I will try to add that at the end of the podcast in case you'd like to learn it. This 
psalm is a poetic, prophetic psalm of David that explains how pointless it is for men, for humans, to attempt to thwart God. He may be patient, but don't confuse that with lack of ability or interest in intervening when he wants to, to make things happen that he wants to happen. This doesn't mean that he causes wrong or morally evil choices. It's pretty clear in the Bible that he doesn't do that. But it proves that he is powerful and smart enough, by far the epitome of those characteristics, to use anything for his purposes. Verse 27 is an interesting list because it basically implicates everyone, people, whether Gentile or Jew, and at all levels of worldly authority, No one gets to pass the buck to anybody else about what happened with Jesus. In verse 31, we get some more confirmation of God's declaring and verifying the birth of church. This is one more place where people try to explain away a miracle, which I don't understand why they feel the need to do that, except that they want to deny God. But I went to read Young's literal translation, and even it says, the place was shaken in which they were gathered. This was not metaphorical or spiritual. This was a physical thing that happened to the building. Also in verse 31, we have a bit of a transition to several verses of summary. As I think I mentioned with Acts 2, at this point, there were no perceived earthly advantages to becoming a Christian, no position or rank or wealth. The love they have for God and each other is being purely expressed in willing sharing. There's no coercion. It also occurred to me as I was reading that with the pending persecution that they didn't know about, but God did, and in a few years, the sacking of Jerusalem, it was probably just as well that they divested themselves of land and such related property as houses. And as we'll see in chapter five, it is not long before someone tries to use this model of giving for their own benefits. Then also in the same passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is instructing the believers not to defraud each other. Also in the second letter that Peter wrote in chapter 2 and Paul in 1 Timothy 6.5, they warn of those who are pretending to be Christian for gain. And Jude 1.4 talks about ungodly men creeping in. So there will be a problem in the future with this. All this to say, whereas we should always review our attitude toward our possessions in light of the scriptures, in light of the fact that this world is not our final home, we don't want to put our heart in treasures where moth and rust destroy, there is no reason we should expect to live in a kind of Christian communism where we blindly trust and just give without discernment. Then at the very last here, we hear of Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas, who is singled out as a specific example of this pure kind of giving, and it will be a counterpoint to something that we will hear about in chapter 5. It seems likely that this is the same Barnabas, repeatedly mentioned in Acts and in several other of Paul's letters, especially since in the other references there's no other distinction that separates the Barnabas that we hear about later from the Barnabas we hear now. So this isn't just a random verse. It is connected to the rest of Acts, even though we won't hear of him again until some very momentous events in Acts chapter 9. And now here's Psalm 2 as recorded about 20 years ago on one of those little cassette player tape thingies with my children singing along with me. And after that, that's all for today. 
Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 